Grace to you and peace from God our Heavenly Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to start this morning by asking a question. And that question is, what did you want to be, or in the case of some of you who don't yet know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm sure this is a question we were all asked when we were little kids, or it's a question we've asked of our own little kids. But for me, when I was a little kid, I was so sure that I was going to become a paleontologist, going to places like Montana or South America to dig up fossils, especially the fossils of dinosaurs. But then I saw the movie Twister, and then I wanted to become a storm chaser, not, not just for the pure adrenaline rush, I'm sure that there is one, but also to help people stay safe in dangerous weather. Then, I wanted to be an architect, kind of like Frank Lloyd Wright. And then I wanted to be a fighter pilot in the Air Force. And then I wanted to be a vehicle designer. You can tell where all this is leading, right? It's, it's obvious that it all heads toward the holy ministry. It's obvious. In all honesty, though, the reason why I decided to answer God's internal and external call to become a pastor was because I wanted to help people spiritually, mentally, and physically so that they could become closer to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My dad has always instilled in me a strong sense of of duty. He exhibited it as a nurse and he passed it on to me. He always emphasized that whatever we do with our lives, we help others in our vocations. That's right. We are talking about vocations today. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That says vacation. We're not talking about vacations. We're talking about vocations. There we go. That's what we're talking about. Before we get started, though, I'd like to to really kind of clarify some things first. A vocation is more than the job that you have. It's more than just the humdrum work that you do. Vocation is what you are called to do according to your various roles and responsibilities in life and doing this work in love and to the best of your abilities. Consequently, one may have more than one vocation in life. For example, I, as a recently married man, have had to learn my new vocational responsibilities as a husband to my lovely wife. I also have responsibilities as the vicar here. And I also have responsibilities and duties as a brother, as a son, as a citizen of the United States of America, and as a friend. All these roles have different responsibilities that go along with them. All have different duties for me to perform in love for my neighbor, not only because God gave me the responsibilities to do them, but also because my neighbor needs them. Now, with that understanding of vocation, let's examine two individuals from our chapter 10 of the story. First, we have Samuel. Now, this great prophet was born to a woman Hannah, who we sang about earlier. Now, she was desperate, 
desperate for a child. And when she was finally blessed with a son, she fulfilled the vow that she gave when he was born by giving him into service, into the Lord's service under the priest Eli, setting him apart or anointing him for this work. Now, as the lad grew up, he listened to his instructor Eli, and he, in this way, fulfilled his vocation as a student and also as a child, subjecting himself to the authority of his elder. Moreover, as a faithful Israelite and a prophet, he was called to speak God's word to those who needed to hear it. And he also did this. Now, sometimes it wasn't all that easy to do. When the Israelites demanded a king, Samuel wanted to reject the idea outright. After all, God was supposed to be their one and only king. But, as is so often the case, the Lord had a different plan even from the one that Samuel had envisioned. God was indeed going to give Israel their human king. But, Samuel was to warn them about all the negative aspects of human government. Now Samuel, he could have said, No, no, Lord. These stiff-necked people have stood against you for too long. We are not going to give them a human king. See, the risk is just too great. But he didn't. Despite his obvious misgivings for the idea, Samuel did indeed anoint the first human king of Israel. He followed his vocational duty to listen and to obey God above all things, including his own misgivings about the action. Enter Saul, our second character for consideration. He was, like so many others in the lower story, the least of his family. So great things could hardly have been expected of him. Saul himself questioned Samuel when he said, in effect, you know, I'm the least of the least. Why on earth would you choose me to become the human king of Israel? You know, this humility kind of makes it seem like Saul was destined to be a great king. But we know better. The story does a very good job of summing up Saul's character and, and demeanor. It's found on, on pages 138 and 39. If you have your story with you and you want to follow along, it says, Saul led the people into battle, and they rallied to support a strong central leader, forcing, forging a nation out of local tribes. This sounds pretty good. He sounds like a pretty good leader. But then we read on. Though he was chosen by God, he was a jealous, impatient, an impetuous man. I don't know about you, but none of these characteristics are anything that I would look for in a human leader, let alone the anointed leader of God's anointed people. Sure, he gave them victory early on. Yes, he did unify Israel's tribes. But something happened. Maybe it was fear, or maybe it was pride, 
But Saul took matters into his own hands and he did what only a priest or a prophet was supposed to do. He offered a sacrifice. To be sure, we can identify with him. We know why he did it and we can even sympathize with him. He was afraid. He was afraid of losing his soldiers who were thinking that this was a lost cause and so he had to act fast in order to keep them around. From a lower story perspective, we totally get it. But that does not excuse his sin. And our understanding doesn't make it somehow okay. As the king of God's anointed people, he, he should have trusted in God to keep them safe and take care of them until Samuel arrived to actually offer up the sacrifice like he was supposed to. He was supposed to set the example of trusting in God in spite of the crumbling world that surrounded him. As God's leaders, we are all called to do that. And the simple fact is, Saul did not. Out of fear or lack of trust, he shirked his vocational responsibilities as king. And this really kind of set the pattern for the rest of his life. Now, it's not that he didn't have good intentions or that he was intentionally trying to mess things up for Israel. That's not the case. We can see that he wanted to be a good king. But his unrepentant, sinful lifestyle and attitudes led to the kingdom being ripped from his hands and placed into the hands of one who was more capable. The message here was quite clear. Saul, if you are not going to fulfill your responsibilities to your neighbor, God is going to give the responsibilities to someone else. That's a tough, tough message to hear, especially when we consider how often we have failed to live up to our vocational obligations and responsibilities. We say it on a weekly basis. We just said it a few moments ago when we said, we have not loved God as we should have. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. The problem is that More often than not, the reason why we don't fulfill our vocational responsibilities is because we have direct vocational interests conflicting. Ask any pastor, or vicar for that matter, I suppose, if it's difficult balancing his personal life and his professional life. I'll tell you the answer. It is. Ask any corporate CEO the same thing. And I can guarantee you he'll give you the same answer. Ask any teacher or father or mother if they have difficulty balancing things in their lives. It's frustrating. I've experienced it and I know you all have too. It feels like we're we're taffy being pulled in 20 different directions. And it seems like no matter what we do, we're going to fail someone at least in some way. So the question now becomes, 
How in the world do we resolve this? What can we do to fulfill our responsibilities and duties to our neighbor? Well, that's the thing. We can't. We cannot serve everyone perfectly. Thanks to our fallen world and our own sinful nature, this task has become impossible for us. But that hardly makes the tasks that we have futile. And it doesn't give us an excuse not to try. You see, there's a reason why we also had our gospel reading today. John the Baptist's words regarding the Lamb of God paints us a portrait of one who kept his vocational duties perfectly. Like Samuel and Saul, he was anointed, not with oil, but with power and the Holy Spirit when he was baptized. Like Samuel and Saul, he was set apart for a very specific purpose. And John foresaw this when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because Jesus kept his vocational duties perfectly, being obedient to death, even death on a cross, we are free to serve our neighbor to the best of our abilities according to our vocations. We don't need to tread lightly We don't need to act like we're walking on eggshells. We rise every morning, remembering that we are baptized believers in the one true God, and we set out into the world to do our best to serve our neighbor with the time that we have. And we never do it perfectly, so we always ask for forgiveness for our blunders and our missteps whenever they occur. But we realize that we are indeed forgiven because Jesus kept his vocation perfectly. This is the Christian life. To live repentant. And this is what Martin Luther meant by his famous, although often misused, saying, sin boldly. What he meant by that was that, you know what, I know that I'm not going to do things perfectly. I know that sometimes, someday, this day, I am going to sin. So I am going to do my very best to serve my neighbor to the best of my abilities with the time that I have. And you know what? If my actions prove sinful at the end of the day, as I'm sure they probably will, I know that I am baptized and I am forgiven. This also gives us incredible hope. And it, it gives us something to look forward to. When Jesus comes back and we are brought to live with him eternally in the new Jerusalem, I'll tell you what, we're not going to have that problem anymore. In the new Jerusalem, we will be able to serve our neighbor and our God perfectly. Think about that. To set out on your day trying to serve your neighbor and for once and forevermore actually succeeding. That's an incredible thought. 
But in the meantime, we will stay here and do what we can. I want you to make no mistake. Samuel was not perfect in keeping his vocation. And perhaps more obviously, neither was Saul. But we look to them as examples. One, for the better, which we can strive for, and the other serves as a warning. So we continue to do our best with the time that we have here. We balance time between our careers and our families. Fathers and mothers, spend time with your children. Students, respect your instructors and do what they require of you. CEOs, managers, and anyone else who has people working for them or under them, respect and stand up for your employees if need be. And on the off chance that there are any actual government officials listening in on this sermon, listen to the people and continue to listen to the people. And we will all look forward to the day when we will finally be able to do our duties perfectly in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his holy and precious name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.